You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today. This is the Visions of Education podcast where everyone who is anyone listens and comes here for all their podcasting needs, including the beautiful people. I'm your charismatic leader, Dan Kretka, along with my all-American co-host, Michael Milton. See what I did there, Michael? Yeah, no, I I saw. I was trying to use some propaganda techniques. It was was okay, a bit awkward. I don't know if I'd make a good charismatic leader in that sense um have you taught about propaganda in your classes michael yeah we do some propaganda activities uh one of my favorite activities we look at the sepoy rebellion of 1857 in india and uh students make um propaganda posters and commercials or radio radio ads to get indians and the brits to join their prospective sides it's a really fun activity uh, and then we share them all and we talk about what worked and how it really exemplifies that particular perspective. Um, so it's a, it's, a pretty neat, it's a pretty neat lesson. Have you used it in your classroom or when you taught? Yeah, I did. I used 1984 as a summer read when I taught AP government. So, you know, nice. we delved into Newspeak and Doublethink, War is Peace, Thought Crime, you know, all the Orwellian prose and things. So. Um, oh, fun. I think it really helped my students, you know, think from a critical perspective for the whole course and think about government. So we're really lucky today because we have a real expert on the topic here with us today. Welcome to the podcast, Renee Hobbs. Hi, glad to be here. Renee, we're so happy to have you. Um, I actually, I did research on you and I hope this doesn't sound weird, but I was <laughs> reading a lot of your stuff and I, I just found it absolutely fascinating. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Um, My pleasure. Thanks. Do you mind starting off by telling people a little bit about your background in education? Sure, sure. Uh, so my name is Renee Hobbs. I'm a professor of communication studies at the Harrington School of Communication and Media at the University of Rhode Island. I have a joint appointment in the School of Education, and my whole life I've been a boundary crosser between the fields of media and education. Um, When I was at Harvard Ed School getting my doctorate in education, I wasn't allowed to write about media literacy because it wasn't considered a definitive topic. There wasn't enough literature, said my advisor. There wasn't enough literature on the topic, even though 10 years before me, uh, or maybe 15 years before me, a um, very interesting Jesuit priest named John Culkin wrote a very interesting dissertation at Harvard Ed School on how to teach filmmaking in high school. And this is in like 19 whatever, 1965. Wow. But for whatever reason, in the 1980s, media literacy was not considered a a legitimate subject of inquiry. So since then, I've been kind of on a mission to make it a legitimate field of inquiry. <laughs> so what does that mean? 
It means I started a national organization for media literacy. That's the National Association for Media Literacy Education. I started a scholarly journal called the Journal for Media Literacy Education. And I've done a lot of teacher education in the last 30 years, uh, working with uh, media companies, including the New York Times and the Discovery Channel, uh, but also working in long-term, multi-year relationships with school districts where over a course of three years, I might uh, train a group of 30 or maybe more uh, teachers to, in to help them integrate uh, media literacy into the uh, K-12 curriculum. And since about 2010, uh, that's taken a distinctly digital turn. Uh, so that's a quick overview. I guess I, I guess I my three things are that drive my passion are uh, supporting teachers with meaningful professional development that bridges media studies and education, uh, creating curriculum materials that make it easier and more fun for teachers to integrate media literacy into the curriculum, um, and then doing research to try to document what happens when kids develop the critical thinking and creativity and collaboration and, and, and communication skills that come along with media literacy. Well, you've done fantastic work in the area, and I know I've really loved, you know, following you on Twitter and just kind of seeing the work you're doing. Um, can you give us a little bit of a definition of what you mean by media literacy and kind of what it encompasses? Sure. So the way I think of media literacy is that media literacy is in an expanded conceptualization of literacy. So in the olden days, we used to think of literacy as reading and writing and speaking and listening. But today, that's really about the sharing of meaning through symbols. So literacy is the sharing of meaning through symbols. And now we share meaning through, um, well, using digital tools and technologies. We share meaning through mass media and popular culture uh, and through advertising and journalism and through social media. Uh, as more of us become not just consumers of information, but creators. So the definition that we developed in the 1990s really still holds the ability to access, analyze, create, and communicate messages in a wide variety of forms. That definition of media literacy is still pretty robust, and I think it still works for a digital age. So how did you get involved in working with schools? Did you have a background in education? Because a lot of people who get involved in media probably go into other fields and other areas and aren't as concerned with how it's taught in schools. How did you get involved in schools? Uh, well, when I was in graduate school, thinking I was going to, first I thought I was going to be a journalist, and then I thought I was going to be a children and media researcher, and then I read Howard Gardner. Back mm -hmm. in the days, before he before he was... Uh, famous for the multiple intelligences idea, Howard Gardner's early work was in looking at kids' interpretation of um, media. And that work was really fascinating to me. So I decided to go to Harvard Ed School and study with him. Because the, the research question that I'm really interested in is how do people learn from and about visual media? Because it seemed to me that learning about and from visual media is different than learning from print media. And so that question has really driven my interest in education. And I was always fascinated at what actually happened in schools. My mom was a uh, really great middle school teacher. Um, and so uh, almost as soon, I was really surprised too when I was at Harvard Ed School how little attention was paid to schools. 
And that was always intriguing to me. How come all these ed school faculty aren't hanging out in schools where all the interesting things are happening? And so I started working in the Taft Middle School in 1985. That was probably before you were born, Dan. No, no, I was uh, born. I was young, <laughs> but I was born. <laughs> so I found that teaching middle school kids and working with middle school teachers just introduced all kinds of really interesting new research questions and um Fascinating curiosities. That's where I discovered how talented and creative teachers are. That's where those seventh graders taught me how to be a good teacher, right? Mm -hmm. They taught me how to be a good teacher. And so through that uh, lens, it's just uh, been a fascinating ride. So I, I am always, this year I have a really meaningful, this is the second year I'm in, in the Newport Public Schools here in Rhode Island. Uh, and I have 30 teachers, and we are having a blast learning and exploring together. It's, uh, I, I feel like um, almost all of my professional work has been really fueled by the creativity and passion of classroom teachers in K-12. That's great. I really love that you do go to teachers and, and you know, our classroom teachers who are really good have so much to offer. Um, but as schools in general, we often just kind of are slow in changing with society, I think. And so I love that you're looking at literacies in, in, in broad and different ways. Um, I know I've been not Howard Gardner, but um, really influenced, you know, in recent years by Howard Rheingold, who's done some cool work around social media literacies and thinking about, you know, if we're using social media in our daily lives and we're so connected to it, what types of new skills or competencies or literacies do we need to function? And so it's all such a, a fascinating new area that if we're going to be current and prepare kids for this world, I think we've got to be doing. And I, I think you're, you're really um, doing a lot of great work. But today we're here to talk about a specific idea that you've been delving into, which is propaganda. Can you tell us about what you've been doing in that area? Yeah, thanks so much for asking. Um, well, in um, I I'll tell you I'll tell you how it started, and then I'll tell you what it is. Um, it started with a um, consultancy with the United States Memorial Holocaust Museum, which is our nation's um, memorial to the um, genocide uh, that happened in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. They had a special exhibit that was at the museum from, from 2007 to about 2012 called The State of Deception, which was about Nazi propaganda. And as part of that special exhibition, they wanted to figure out how to build a bridge between the past and the present. After all, millions of American kids grow up thinking that propaganda was something that happened long ago in Nazi Germany. In fact, it's a kind of old-fashioned word, isn't it, right? Yeah. Which, which, in fact, might make us think that we don't have propaganda today. And, of course, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, in many, uh, uh, because of the way we teach or don't teach about propaganda, um, this was a problem that we needed to correct. Um, so we did a, a lot of cool things involving new technology. One thing we did was we... Um, we created a cell phone exhibit so that when teenagers go through the exhibit, they're looking at all these really cool artifacts, you know, children's picture books that are anti-Semitic and um, speeches, recordings of Hitler giving his famous speeches and, you know, uh, uh, all kinds of really interesting examples of physical artifacts of propaganda. Um, 
we, we noticed that the teenagers were racing through the exhibit and they weren't really stopping to take a look at these cool things. So we created a cell phone exhibit. It slowed them down. In fact, kids who used the cell phone exhibit while they were in the installation went four times more slowly through the exhibit and actually looked at stuff and read stuff and engaged with stuff and, and interacted about the ideas. So we think that's uh, evidence of cell phones being really useful for museum. And then we also tried to figure out how we could make a connection between historical propaganda of the 20th century and contemporary forms of propaganda in the 21st century. And so for that, we created Mind Over Media, Analyzing Contemporary Propaganda, which you, you and your listeners can find online at mindovermedia.tv. It's a crowdsourced gallery, Dan. What that means is that anyone can upload examples of contemporary propaganda, uh, examples they might find on their Twitter page or on their Facebook feed or on the CNN-sponsored uh, content, right? That looks like news but really is advertising, right? Uh, they might put a, a pro-Trump pro meme up. And in the last, we launched this just um, less than one year ago, uh, 65,000 people have commented on the more than 500 examples of propaganda from all over the world. It's a really interesting website that we think can serve as a stimulus to promote meaningful discussion, analysis, critical thinking, and really activist response to the beneficial and the harmful forms of propaganda that are swirling around us today. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you define propaganda and the types of things you try to get people to look for, maybe like techniques of, that, that people who are um, using propaganda use oftentimes to influence other people? Yeah, sure. One of the things that we did as part of this inquiry was we did a real deep dive research to figure out how do teachers teach about propaganda now. And we actually even did a historical analysis to figure out where did that come from. You're probably familiar with the techniques of propaganda that are in every English and history textbook, you know, glittering generalities, ad hominem, the bandwagon, identification of propaganda techniques was invented in 1937 by a journalist named Claude Miller, who was funded by a Jewish businessman named Edward Filene. He was the guy who owned Filene's department stores in Boston. He, he, he paid Clyde Miller, a journalist, to come up with a quick and easy way to help high school teachers teach about propaganda because in the 1930s, people were hearing propaganda on the radio, very extreme forms of radio propaganda, and th they wanted to basically help high school teachers deal with that. So that tech, that pedagogy of uh, spot the techniques has been around since the 1930s. So what we did was we went back to look at how scholars throughout the 20th century have written and talked about propaganda. So first we looked at how they defined it. And when we looked, we saw lots of definitions. It's a very contested term, but it's in its original formulation which goes back to the Latin term, propaganda meant propagation of the faith. And it was what the Catholic Church did, right? To spread the good news of the gospel to people around the world. In the 1920s, Edward Bernays used the term propaganda to talk about how companies like 
uh, Ford Motor Company and um, tobacco companies could persuade people into buying these new kinds of industrialized products and services. And that was also a positive, it was designed as a positive term. It was how we helped mobilize people to get into World War I, right? We used propaganda. So Henry Ford used propaganda uh, both to make a profit and he used it in the more traditional <laughs> anti-Semitic <laughs> sense, right? Um, with, with his, a lot of a lot of students are surprised to learn about the the newspapers that were distributed at the Ford, you know, uh, car dealerships, and that were yeah, very anti-Semitic. They back had in the day. ideas about how people should behave and act, and they used the big megaphone made possible propaganda in lots of creative mm -hmm. ways. So when students appreciate that propaganda has changed its meaning over time, then we en we enroll them in looking at different definitions and deciding for themselves which of these definitions work. And while identification of techniques is important, we only emphasize four that we think are most uh, uh, appropriate for looking at contemporary propaganda. Uh, propaganda is recognizable because it activates strong emotions, it simplifies information and ideas, it addresses people's real human needs. It responds to people's real values and needs. And then finally, propaganda attacks opponents. So we think those four techniques really help uh, people recognize and uh, understand how propaganda works. And to use it for, and, and I want to underline this idea that propaganda can be beneficial or harmful, depending on your point of view. Interesting. So the uh, the identification um, angle is actually really neat. The four different points. Um, now, how can a teacher bring this this idea, uh, looking at propaganda, not just back then, but also you know in modern, um, you know, on your Facebook feed? How can a teacher bring that to life in their classroom? Uh, Michael, thanks so much for asking. So there's yeah, no two uh, big pedagogies that we emphasize in the uh, curriculum materials. One is by having discussions about whether you perceive a piece of propaganda to be beneficial or harmful and why, mm -hmm. that opens up a values conversation that forces us to explore context, right? So when you and I watch a message and we have different opinions about it, the only way for us to understand why our opinions are different is to look at both our, our context as interpreters and to look at the context in which the message circulates, right? In socioeconomic context, in political context. So we think discussions about propaganda are really powerful. But the second strategy that we propose is also useful, which is students actually need to know about the new forms of propaganda that happen. And to do that, then we have to study viral marketing and we have to study so we have to study virality in general to understand how we are responsible for spreading propaganda. Coney 2012 got to be the most virulent propaganda of human history uh, because we spread it, right, to 100 million people in seven days. So that was, that was the Invisible Children, right? The um, Invisible Children organization had worked against Joseph Coney, the um, leader in, was yeah. it uh, Uganda? Um, and, and so I remember being, when I was a high school teacher, you know, we invisible children would, the, the organization would come by every year and have their kind of MTV style films to kind of try to get people interested in the topic. 
But I remember thinking how um, we needed to do so much more work with them to help them understand global issues and how to address them um, beyond <laughs> buying a cool T-shirt, <laughs> you know. Um, and we had we did at my high school we had an anti-genocide coalition, and but getting a lot of students to stick with yeah, that long term was problematic. Issue of how activists use propaganda in order to motivate and engage audiences to take some forms of political action. We think the other big topic that has to be introduced to students and explored in more in depth is something that's called content marketing, or some people call it native advertising. Of course, this is uh, why that pair of shoes follows you around. As I really you go- like those shoes. <laughs> They're when amazing. You go- Your Instagram to your Twitter to your Facebook, that pair of shoes follows you around because um, it it knows that you are interested in buying shoes. And that very phenomenon is actually a new form of propaganda, right, that you are helping to create by the Mm -hmm. digital trail that you leave behind whenever you go, whenever you go anywhere or do anything online. So we think it's really important for uh, students to engage in a meaningful debate about, you know, under what conditions will we accept content marketing and under what uh, conditions is content marketing actually deceptive and unfair. That's, that's interesting. Um, Because I was thinking about going, talking about the content marketing and then going back to whether it's beneficial or harmful. I imagine there's a pretty interesting discussion, whether it actually is. Because maybe those new shoes that I, I really want that is following me around, maybe it's beneficial that I see it everywhere. So one day I'll actually buy them. Or it's terrible <laughs> because I've actually already bought four pairs of the same New Balance shoes in different colors. Yeah, Michael. You know, some people say that advertising is less harmful and more beneficial when it's very closely targeted to your needs. You don't perceive advertising as intrusive mm. when it's actually – addressing what your real needs are. Now, other people say that that's a deeper form of exploitation, right, that positions you as a consumer from the cradle to the grave and is more exploitive because you're not really aware of how you're co-constructing it. So it is a fascinating uh, field of inquiry. We found that high school students and college students love to engage in this. And did I mention that the 500 examples of propaganda on our website, some of them are shocking, scary, frightening. They all activate strong emotions. So we definitely emphasize this idea that kids should go cruise the gallery, poke around, look at stuff, see what grabs them, see what activates their strong emotions. Turns out even most reluctant writers will want to do a genuine inquiry on a piece of propaganda that captured their feelings and, 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 and cultivated their curiosity. Wow. So Thank you so much, uh, Renee, for, for talking with us today. I have so many ideas that I'm, um, I'm just thinking about how I can bring it back to my class. And we definitely want to connect people with the stuff you're doing. Where can people find your content online? Everything's available at the Media Education Lab. That's www.mediaeducationlab.com. I know you're on Twitter, right? At Renee Hobbs. That's it. From the Media Education Lab, you can see all the curriculum materials that we've created, all of the uh, research papers we've written, and the new propaganda website, Mind Over Media, is just one click away from that website. You also might want to learn more about the Summer Institute in Digital Literacy. This is our fourth year 
at the University of Rhode Island, we have about 150 uh, K-12 teachers, college faculty, a school and college librarians, and media professionals come for a 42-hour intensive program. It's taught by my colleague, Julie Quiro, who's one of the world's leading experts on online reading comprehension, and myself. And we have a great time. We learn a lot. Everybody learns from everybody. Maybe next year you guys will come. You, Renee, I actually was already thinking about it myself. I've seen you post all this cool stuff about it, and I've just thought how cool it would be to, to work with other educators, get practice in, in expanding media, my media literacy skills and, and the things I can create and do. And um, I like also that you, you don't just help um, teachers and educators think of ways to critique media, but to create powerful media. And I think that's so important. So um, Re Renee has done so much cool stuff. You know, I always loved your your uh, your film article on ways that teachers should not use movies in class. So there, she's done so much good work over the year. Um, and we'll get a lot of that on our website and our show notes um, so everybody can connect with a lot of your work. If you haven't already, uh, make sure you do subscribe to the Visions of Education on iTunes and Stitcher. And check out those show notes because... There's going to be a lot of great uh, discussion there and a lot of great resources. And if you write us a five-star review, then we'll read it on the air. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42ThinkDeep. And until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. <laughs>